Matthew 19. Last week we did verses 1 through 9. This week we're going to pick it up in verse 10 and hopefully finish up the chapter. Lord willing, time willing. Now the thing about Matthew 19 is this. Basically whatever season of life you're in, Jesus wants to address that season here today. That's the whole point. And what you're going to see is this. Every season of life you're in, the whole focus comes back to Christ being the foundation of your life. Last week, verses 1 through 9 was all about marriage and divorce. And we can sum it up by letting Christ be the foundation of your marriage. That's what we were talking about. So now this morning, as we move past marriage and divorce, now we're going to talk about what it means to be single. Then we're going to talk about the little children. And then we're going to give an example here of the rich young ruler that had everything in life but did not have Christ as the foundation. So whatever season of life you're in here this morning, there's an opportunity for you to learn about Christ being the foundation. But also, more importantly is as you are ministering to other people, you may have this, you may understand this, you're going to run into people who are single. What verses can you share with them? What verses can you do? You have young people involved in your life. How can you help take them deeper in Jesus Christ? You're going to run into that person that has everything the world has to offer, but they still don't know Christ. How can we represent Jesus to them? That's what it comes down to. So Matthew 19, pick it up in verse 10. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Now, if you remember correctly from our teaching last week about marriage, what was going on, there was two schools of thought when it came to marriage and divorce. And the very, very liberal school of thought was you divorce for any reason you want, however you want. And they got that out of Deuteronomy 24, where in Deuteronomy 24 it said that the husband could divorce his wife for uncleanliness. So they determined uncleanliness to be anything. And I'm not making a joke. This is an actual example. If you found a wife that was prettier than your wife, you could divorce your wife because your wife was now considered unclean. Because there's somebody better looking. So what was happening is marriage meant nothing. So Jesus then taught on marriage. And this was very difficult because they were used to hearing these teachings of you do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. So hence verse 10. The disciples basically say, well, maybe it's better to not get married at all then. Jesus says in verse 11, well, you know what? Maybe that's true. All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Jesus said there is a blessing in being single. Now, I've run into a lot of single people. They don't think it's a blessing. I'll tell you that right now. Now, I heard a point years ago at a pastor's conference. I've never forgot it is this. If you're unhappy single, you're going to be unhappy married. If you do not have a contentment in being single, you're not going to have a contentment in being married. You're not. Because what happens is you're going to go into marriage thinking this marriage is going to make you happy. And there will be a season of joy and happiness, but ultimately, your joy comes from the Lord, not from your spouse. I remember years ago getting a phone call from a young wife. She called me up. It was pretty rough. She said over the phone, she goes, I can't make him happy. I don't know what to do. And this was about a month into their marriage. And I remember saying, good. It only took you a month to realize you can't make him happy. I know some wives that spend years, decades, still thinking they can make their spouse happy. You can't. What a great lesson to learn early. I can't make Dawn happy, and it's unfair for her to try to make me happy. My joy comes from the Lord and the Lord alone. Now, I have a joy in marriage, and I love my wife, but I cannot look to Dawn to bring happiness to me. That's between me and the Lord. I can't also say I need to do everything I can to make Dawn happy, because that puts an unfair burden on me. I can't meet expectations. 
It's the Lord and the Lord alone. So remember, unhappy single is going to be unhappy married. It's not about getting married to make yourself happy. It's because the Lord brought you together. And that's what we talked about last week. There is a blessing in being single, though. And this is what the Lord is trying to say here in verse 12. He goes, there's three ways people are single, if you will. He calls it being a eunuch. It's a term we don't use a lot anymore. But maybe the first one is by birth. There's physical issues where the person just can't get married. Then there's also the idea of being eunuchs, being made eunuchs. Back during Bible times, it was not uncommon if you were a male and you were captured by the enemy. You'd be made a eunuch, so therefore you were not able to reproduce. Basically, your race would start to cease to exist. But the last one, the one we want to focus on here the most, is the one Jesus ends in verse 12. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He was able to accept it, let them accept it. These are people that realize the Lord has called them to a season of singleness. Now, once again, that's difficult. But I'm going to share a couple verses on this. If you're a note taker, write it down. You may not be single, but you're going to run into somebody who's single, and you're going to run into somebody who struggles with being single. First one, 1 Corinthians 7, 27. 1 Corinthians 7, 27 very simply says, do not go out seeking a spouse. Don't go seeking a spouse. The word seeking there is a very strong word. It's a strong word. It means that you stop everything you're doing, and the only thing you're focusing on is, is finding a spouse. That's your life. That's your focus. Jesus says, don't do that. That's not your job to find Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. It's not. It's your job to do what? Be patient and wait for the Lord to bring the right person into your life. I tell people all the time, listen, if you're Adam, wait for the Lord to bring an Eve into your life. If you're Eve, wait for the Lord to bring an Adam into your life. God will do it in his timing. Trust him. The Lord will bring Adam and Eve together. But what happens is there becomes almost a sense of, dare we say, desperation, frustration. Everybody else is getting married. I want to be married. I want that life. I want the kids. And so, therefore, I'm just going to start seeking. Be patient and allow the Lord to work. There's a guy that I knew pretty well that went through a pretty tough relationship. That relationship ended, and it was a pretty tough spot for him. And I remember kept telling him, the Lord will bring you an Eve. He will bring you an Eve. Just wait. And God's faithfulness, he brought him an Eve. It's tough, though, when you have lost that something and you're looking for it. And that becomes your drive, your determination. Have you ever lost something and you just lost it and you're, just, you're taking everything you can to look for it? And you have no joy, no peace because you can't find this item. That's the way some people feel like when it comes to a spouse. It's an awful feeling. Just the other day, I think it was on Friday, Dawn and I were going to try to do something, and we needed to use the lawnmower to move something around. So I I had the lawnmower key, put it in my pocket, went out, started getting stuff around to do it, go back to get on the lawnmower, can't find the key. Can't find the key. So you retrace all your steps, right? You look on the driveway, you look where you're walking, you look in the grass, you're looking all over the place. And I check my pocket, and guess what? My pocket has a hole in it. So you just start praying, Lord, we've got to find this key. And you start thinking this through way too much. Lord, in the whole scheme of heaven and hell, why did you have me lose the key? You know, Lord, what's, what's going on here? Lord, you've created the world out of nothing, but you can't just make the key glow or something like that just to have us find it. So we can't find the key. We're looking, we're looking, we're looking. And I really felt like, and I don't take this like some ultra-spiritual thing, I really felt like the Lord said, check the trash. Went over, checked the trash, and guess what? The key was in the trash. You know why the key was in the trash? Now we have to back up here for one second. You may not know this, but I, I, I don't want to. I'm, I'm pretty close to perfect. I'm not all the way there, but I'm pretty close. As a husband, yeah, I got it all figured out. So it wasn't my fault that the key got lost. I just want to make sure you know that. What had happened was I gave the key to Dawn, 
And Dawn was collecting trash and everything just got thrown in. So, so pray for my wife. But the point is, you, you can't find it and you're looking for it. And that, that feeling of just desperation and whatever, I've seen that in single people. And it's like, you know what? Step back and allow the Lord to move and work. It may take a while. I'm being honest, it may take a while, but it's better to wait for the right one. Now, the other point about being single is this. In 1 Corinthians 7, 32 and 33, the Bible makes it clear, if you're single, you have more opportunities to serve the Lord than what a married person does. You know, I have a lot of commitments in life. I have a wife. I have seven children. I want to make sure everybody's taken care of. So therefore, if somebody calls me up and this happens, I get a single guy that calls me up at 9.30 at night. It's like, you should come over. I could. But when I come home, my door would be locked and my wife would have changed the locks. Because no, I can't. That's not the season of life I'm in. Single guy has got a lot more freedom to do that. And I see there's a lot of single guys out here that in this season of life, they are serving and they're helping. They're doing this and doing that because they don't have as many time commitments as what being married does. Now, that doesn't mean being married is wrong because that brings a different season of serving. And there's a blessing in that as well. But the Lord is trying to say in 1 Corinthians 7, instead of sitting there focused on, oh, I don't have anybody, you have the Lord. And in this season, the Lord says, there's things that you and I can do together that once you get married... You're not going to be able to do. So enjoy that season that you're in. It may not be the season you want to be in, but in God's perfect timing, that is the perfect season, and it can be a blessing at that time. So the Lord says there is a blessing to being single. So we talked about marriage in verses 1 through 9, single in verses 10 through 12. And if you have a single friend that's struggling, encourage them. Encourage them with those passages in 1 Corinthians 7. Tell them they don't need to spend their energy looking for someone. The Lord will bring the right person. Tell them that there is a season of contentment right now of realizing there's things that you can do. And you know what? Just pray for them. Pray for them to have that contentment in the Lord. Now, what about kids though? Verse 13, Then little children were brought to him that he may put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. This is a really interesting thing here, these kids being brought to Christ. Now, first off, in the book of Luke, the story in Luke, they're called infants. So you imagine these little babies being brought to Jesus. And I'm not an expert on Greek, I don't claim to be, but one book I was studying said, for the word there about when they brought them to Jesus, that that in the original Greek is a masculine noun, meaning it was the dads bringing their little kids to Christ. What a beautiful picture. You got Jesus there. You got these men lined up. They got their babies and they're just coming over to Christ saying, could you just pray for my baby? Could you just pray for my child? What a beautiful picture. Now, what is that a picture of? Parents, take your kids to Jesus. Your your goal in life is to introduce your child to Jesus Christ. And to say, I want you to know Christ. I want you to love Christ on such a deep level. That's what I want. And I want to spend my season of life with my children, pointing them towards the Lord. Now, you may be here this morning, you may say, I don't have children. Okay, but you know what? There's a child somewhere in your life. You may be a grandma or a grandpa. You may be mom or dad. Your aunt, your uncle. There is something where you have a young child in your sphere of influence that you get a chance to influence for a little bit spiritually. Now, that season may not last long, but the season you have, point them towards Christ. That's going to be the greatest foundation you can lay in their life. Go with me to Deuteronomy 6, please. Deuteronomy 6. As you're going to Deuteronomy 6, in 2 Timothy 3, 
one of the points that Paul tells Timothy is that I know that since you're a child, you have known the scriptures. What a blessing that is. Then in 1 Timothy, when he's speaking to Timothy again, he says, Your grandmother and your mother, I know ingrained the Lord into you. What a blessing as a young age. So what does that look like to try to take your kids to Jesus or your nieces, your nephews, your grandkids? What does that look like? Well, Deuteronomy 6 explains it to us. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. So the first point you see is you. You understanding the importance of this. You understanding that these years I have with the influence in this child, and maybe it's not even years, it's weeks, months, I need to make sure that in my heart I understand the importance of this, and I want to point them and take them deeper in their walk with the Lord. How do I do it? Verse 6, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. It has to start in the heart. Verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your heart, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Just good practical advice on how this looks. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Teach your kids God's Word. And if you don't know God's Word, if that sounds awkward or strange, you know what? I tell you this, go grab a children's devotional. Learn with them. If you want a copy of a children's devotional, we got them from all levels. We got them from preschool up to middle school, whatever it is. Teach them. Sit down with them. Let them see that. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. I told you before, one of the things that we like to do before we do a meal, we'll sit down and read a verse together as a family. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, when the boys get up in the morning, I usually ask them, have you, have you done some devotions this morning? Have you spent some time with the Lord? You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Dawn does a great job. She puts scripture up in her house. And so when you walk around, you just see God's word and it just kind of reminds you, just makes you kind of think about those passages there. I was just over at someone's house recently and as I walked in their house, they, they have scripture up there on the door frame. You just walk in, you read the verses. How cool is that? But what does this look like practically for you? This doesn't mean that you carry a permanent marker with you and you go into someone else's house and you just start writing scripture up. Don't do that. Now, if the Lord leads you in your house, that's between you and the Lord. But what it means is that you stop and you realize ministry is this. If I'm around a young child, be it my kid, grandkids, great-grandkids, niece, nephew, neighborhood child, I don't know what it is, I have an opportunity to plant a seed into them and to take them and introduce them to Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to do. What a wonderful blessing that is, is just to constantly keep introducing kids to Christ. Now, that's the goal. Why is it so difficult? Well, go back to Matthew 19. What happened when these parents came and brought their kids to Jesus in verse 13? The disciples rebuked them. Everybody knows infants are a threat. Oh, man. Now, we don't think about this today, do we? But the problem is we still do. I know of two churches, two churches that have stopped all children's activities. They don't do VBSs anymore. They don't do Bible studies for kids. They don't do any of it. And they came right out and said, because they don't like the idea of what it could do to their building. Why? Because those kids are a threat. Kids are dirty. They come in. They're not going to treat chairs with respect. They're not going to treat walls with respect. They're not going to do this or that. They're going to mess everything up. And we've worked so hard to make this building be beautiful and acceptable and wonderful. We rebuke them. 
What a sad, sad thing is when you realize Jesus is saying here the importance that we have in showing Christ to the next generation, but yet then what we're concerned more about us than about those kids. I tell you, kids are a blessing. I shared with you a couple weeks ago, about 15 years ago, before we started having children, I never saw the blessing of children. And now as time has gone on, you see that. You see these young kids wanting to grow and go deeper in Jesus Christ. And boy, what an absolute blessing that is. And I love what the Jesus does in verse 14. Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. We are training up the next generation of believers. And that's what it comes down to. Encourage them. Take them with you. Let them see you minister. Let them do stuff like that. To let them see what it means to be an active believer in the Lord. So we've covered every segment of life. We covered marriage last week. We covered being single this week. We covered the children. There's one last person to cover. And this is the most difficult person to talk about. It's the person that has everything. Has everything. Let's talk about him here for a second. Matthew 19, verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that may inherit eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, if you put the three gospel accounts together of this, we know from Matthew 19 he's young, we know from Mark 10 he's rich, and we know from Luke 18 that he was an authority, he was a ruler. Think about this. This guy had power, youth, and wealth. He had everything the world could offer. This is the guy you'd want to be your neighbor. This is the guy that you'd want to work with. This is the guy you'd want your daughter to date. This is everything. Power, youth, wealth. Everything the world could offer. But guess what? He didn't know Jesus Christ. That's what he's lacking. And he knows it's lacking. He sees that. He knows that. Verse 20. All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? What is this hole that's still in my life? See, this is the hard part. You can have everything the world wants to throw at you. You can have every joy the world wants to throw, every fleshly desire, every woman, every whatever. And there's still going to be a moment in time where you stop and say, this is it? Take somebody like Solomon. Solomon, who had 700 wives and concubines. It wasn't enough. The flesh can never be satisfied. He had wealth more than you can imagine. Never will be satisfied. Because the only thing that's going to satisfy you is the Lord. See, God has created you as an eternal being. And the only thing that's going to satisfy an eternal being is an eternal Lord. There there is that little hole in your life that only can be filled by the Lord. It says in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity in our hearts to make us think about Him. Some of you here this morning, you've done it for a long enough time that you've looked at everything the world can offer you and you still walk away feeling empty. Okay, this guy had it all. And he says, what do I still lack? So he comes, he calls Jesus good. Jesus has an interesting response in verse 17. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. This is a little bit of a probing question. Remember in the Bible, anytime Jesus asks a question, he's never asking a question because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking a question to make the person think. Why do you think I am good? The only one that is good is God. Well, what's the answer he's looking for? Well, I think you're God. So Jesus says, what have you done? Boy, this guy is moral, isn't he? 
Verse 18, no murder, no adultery, never stolen, never bore false witness. He honored his parents. He loved his neighbor as himself. All these things I've kept from my youth. This guy had it all. But something is still missing. Verse 20, what do I still lack? I tell you, this is the majority of the people that we talk to. Very rarely do you ever run into someone who's an honest-to-goodness atheist. They don't believe in any God whatsoever. They're always looking, thinking, wondering, okay? I've never run into anybody here in Northwest Ohio that has never actually heard the name Jesus before. They at least have some type of understanding of Christianity through it being nativity scenes or something like that. Who do we run into the most? These people. Decent, good, moral people that don't know Jesus Christ personally. These are the people you're going to run into. Because if you try to approach them as saying goodness and works, they're going to say, I'm a good person. And they are a good person. Yeah, but do you have Christ? Do you have that personal relationship? Because there's something you're still lacking. That doesn't even register with them. They're so focused on the world and life. It doesn't even, this idea of eternity, heaven and hell doesn't even register with them. I was talking to a gal at the checkout the other day, and here I'm going through the checkout, and the cashier's name was Trinity. It's like, okay, well, Lord, that's an easy conversation starter. So Trinity. So I said, that's a very unique name. She goes, yeah. She, I, she said, Trinity. I said, so, I said, why did your mom name you Trinity? She goes, well, most people think it's because of the movie, you know, The Matrix, Trinity, that was in the movie. And she goes, actually, what the story was, my mom was driving by a church, it was Trinity Baptist, and she liked the name Trinity, so she named me Trinity. So, okay, God just opens the door right there. It reminds me of the one time when we went out to eat, and our uh, waitress's name was Genesis. Okay, that's an easy one, Lord. Thank you. Let's just start a conversation. So, Trinity, is your mom a Christian, you know, whatever? Nothing. Nothing. It's just a name. And there's no biblical basis. There's no biblical understanding. There's absolutely nothing. Here is she is named after the triune God. And there's no understanding in any way whatsoever what that word means, represents in it at all whatsoever. And that's the world we live in. Here's this rich young ruler that literally has it all. Everything the world could offer. And he's a moral good guy. But this guy still understands in verse 20, I'm lacking something. So what's Jesus' response? Verse 21, if you want to be perfect, perfect does not mean without sin. It means complete. It means whole. Go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. So this is not a works-based salvation. This is Jesus saying, listen, you have such a focus on things, you've got to get rid of that. And when you can get rid of those things, then you can really focus on who I am. The response, verse 22, the young man heard that saying, and he went away sorrowful. He didn't want to give up his life. He didn't want to give up everything. He wanted everything the world had to offer, but yet he still realized there's an emptiness that comes with it. Now, I think it's interesting to note in Mark's account of this, in verse 21, it says Jesus said to him, but more importantly, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him, the Bible said. Jesus loved this man enough to be honest with him. I just want to encourage you real quick. There will probably come up a time in the relatively near future where there's somebody you love and you love them deeply. You have to love them enough to be honest with them and to say, this isn't working. This, this idea of what you think morally or in life, spiritually, whatever, I love you enough to tell you it's not right. You have to love people enough to speak honestly and truthfully to them. Does it go good? 
No, it doesn't. Oh, good. I'll tell you that right now. I have been hung up by so many people on the phone. People walked out of counseling sessions, etc. And I don't think I'm being a jerk. I love them enough to say, listen, i got to be honest with you on this. I don't see what you're doing lining up biblically. Jesus loved this guy enough to be completely honest with him. The man's response, verse 22, he walked away sorrowful. Jesus wasn't saying, I want your possessions. Jesus never wants your money. He never wants your possessions. Jesus doesn't want you to want it. And so therefore, Christ is saying, this is holding you back, young man. Let it go. And then you can follow me completely. This is not a workspace. No, this is getting the heart where it's supposed to be. This is a heart issue. Verse 23, then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because they always trust in riches. There's nothing wrong with money. The Bible doesn't speak against money. The Bible speaks against the love of money. Verse 25, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? The reason this is such an astonishment is because 2,000 years ago, what they taught was this. If you were wealthy and you had a lot of stuff, you were blessed by God. You were in. So if you had money and power and possessions, you're in. So here's Jesus coming and taking this teaching and completely flipping it upside down. And saying, listen, wealth does not equate being saved. The disciples are astonished. Then who can be saved? Verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Verse 26 is so freeing. You don't have to save yourself. You don't have to do enough good to get into heaven. You don't have to do enough good deeds to make yourself savable in the eyes of God. You don't. Christ takes care of it. With God all things are possible. It's him on the cross. And when you get that and you realize that, all of a sudden there's a freedom to step back and say, it's grace, it's mercy, it's just love. It's not that I'm good enough to get in. It's Jesus just loves me enough. And when you get that, how freeing is that? Because there's nobody here that can be good enough to get in. We can't. Verse 26 there. With men this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That is a lie that's still going through the world today. That if you think you do a good enough job, you can get in. Boy, I run into this a lot. I get contacted a lot of times to do funerals for people I've never met before. So there'll be somebody that passes away in the community and the funeral home will contact and saying, this person didn't have a pastor, didn't have a home church. Will you think about doing the funeral? As much as possible, we try to do them. Because I heard a teaching years ago saying, what a great opportunity to proclaim Christ to people. They're sitting here. They're thinking about death. They're thinking about eternity. You have an opportunity to really represent the Lord to them. So we try to go over and do them. So we go over to the house, never met the person, which is really kind of difficult. But you go over and you try to start talking to this family that has no church whatsoever. And you start talking, just chit-chat. Tell me about mom. Tell me about dad. Tell me about grandma. Tell me about grandpa. So you tell stories, etc., and things like this. So eventually the Lord opens the door and you bring it back to spiritual matters. And so you start saying things to this effect of, well, you know, did, did they go to church? You know, were they a Christian? Were they saved? Whatever. And I don't know how many times I've heard this. It becomes silent. And then I hear something like this. Well, Grandma really wasn't much of a church-going person. But if there was anybody who deserves heaven, it would be her. And you stop and you realize they're basing everything on just that Grandma was a good person. And then this starts turning into, yeah, if anybody can make it in, it'd be grandma. She was so nice. 
And they make it sound like Jesus wants grandma because she makes great chocolate chip cookies or something for all of eternity, you know? No. And you hear that, and it just becomes this, this brief moment of just despair, realizing this family has convinced themselves, if I do enough good, I get in. And that's what they think. And so therefore, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I don't know where everybody here is at this morning, but I just want to make this abundantly clear. You'll never do enough good to get into heaven. And you'll never do enough good. And before you think that sounds awful, rude, and despairing, no, it's actually very loving. Because Jesus says, even if you don't do enough good, I still love you enough. And I'll take you in through my own paid admission. And that's the purpose of the cross. Because with God, all things are possible. What Jesus is trying to say here is, listen, no matter what you're going through, no matter what state you're in, be it single, be it married, be it young, he goes, I want to be the foundation of your life. This rich young ruler that had everything the world has to offer, I want to be the foundation of your life. I can do this, Christ says. And he says, it's going to be sacrifice, it's going to be difficulties, but you know what, it's going to be worth it. See, look at verse 27, And Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? I like how the New Living Translation says this. Here's Peter. Peter just says what he thinks. Verse 27, New Living Translation. Peter said to him, We've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? But isn't that the truth? We've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? Boy, do you ever think that way? Lord, do you see my sacrifices? You owe me, Lord. I didn't snap back when she said that. You owe me, Lord. And we start thinking, what do we get out of it? Now, it's kind of interesting with Peter's direct, straightforward, we've given up everything for you, Lord. What do we get? Jesus really doesn't rebuke him. Jesus says, actually, Peter, you're on to something here. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He says, Peter, listen, there is an eternity waiting for you. And there's an eternity of just blessing and joy. But look at verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Jesus says, I know every sacrifice you make. Not a single sacrifice you do goes unnoticed. Not a single one. So if you've been going through a very difficult time... The Lord sees that and knows that. If you really are trying for things to be different in your marriage, your spouse doesn't see it, the Lord sees it. If you're really trying to be different at work, the Lord sees it. If you're just being trying to be different in your own personal walk with Christ, I want to be more pure, I want to be more focused, I want to be more in the Word. No one else knows it, the Lord knows it. And God promises there, He goes, I see it. I see it. What a blessing that is. And really, how do we sum up this entire chapter? Verse 30. Many who are first will be last and the last first. If you're constantly fighting, go back to the beginning of the chapter. If you're fighting in your marriage to be number one, now Jesus says, put yourself at the bottom of your marriage. If you're fighting in your single life to be number one, no, Jesus says, put yourself at the bottom, put me first. When it comes to your children, no, put Christ first. When it comes to wealth and power and health, you want it all, Jesus says, no, put me first. Every sacrifice you make, Jesus says, I notice and I see, and you will be rewarded for that. What it comes down to in verse 30 is, quit trying to be number one. 
and realize Christ has to be number one in all you say and do. And when that happens, everything else falls into place. If you remember correctly, way back in January when we started out this year, one of the verses that we started this year out with was Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And we spent the first six weeks of this year saying, we want to seek first the Lord and all we do and say. It's about denying ourselves. It's about dying to ourselves and what we want. It's never about what we want. It's about what the Lord wants. Putting Him first in all that we say and all that we do. And when we get that, when we see that, now, Lord, I understand what marriage is. Now I understand the season of singleness. Now I understand raising kids. Now I understand going out into the world. It's not about being healthy and wealthy and being powerful. It's about you. And when I get that, the Lord understands that. Worship team, we've come forward here with the final song. Let's pray this into our lives. Lord, as we come to you now, help us. Help us in our marriages to put you first.